this morning, uh, we're continuing our study in Paul's first letter to Timothy, which we've entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this morning is part 39, where we'll be uh, examining 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, in, in this message entitled, The King. Or let me say that another way, The King. The King. Uh, please, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, maybe it's uh, uh, physical or maybe it's on your phone, whatever it is, if you'd go ahead and turn there to get ready when we get to that part, 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 through 16. But before we do that, we want to review some things from last week so we can get things into context. Now, last week, Jay covered 1 Timothy uh, 6, 11 through 14, and you said, well, aren't you doing 14? Well, it kind of overlaps, so sometimes that happens. Make sure we get the right context. So he did 11 through 14 last week, and if you remember, Jay began telling a story from the Gospels about when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and his examination by Pontius Pilate, kind of one of his trials before his death, um, and he used that to, to, as an illustration for later on when he was dealing with something later in the sermon. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But Jay then told a story about a time when he was in the Philippines. And if you don't know, Jay spent a long time in the Philippines um, in the mountains and taking the gospel to unreached people groups. And uh, some of them actually had been reached, but he was taking, now they had a Bible in their language. That just fires me up. But they had a, he, he was the first, he told me the guy that uh, was one of the first people to go in, they got the language and they got the Bible. He handed the Bible to Jay and he says, okay, it's your job to teach him. Wow. So he was traveling from village to village, and this particular time he was traveling um, in the Philippines, and, and, and this path had high grass on both sides to another village, and, and uh, he was faced with this flight or fight decision, if you remember. And, and as he was traveling to this village on a path, this path, he could see the tall grass on one side of the path kind of moving toward him rapidly. So he had a decision to make. All right, was he going to flee whatever was coming, and it was moving pretty quickly, and, and enough grass was being disturbed, he knew it was pretty big. Is he going to flee, or is he going to fight? Where his first decision was, I'm going to flee. I'm going to move over this other side, over here, so I don't have to take on what's ever coming through the grass. And as he did that, whatever was in the grass took a beeline and turned right toward Jay. And the grass started rustling, it's coming toward him, and then he said, well, then I guess I'm just going to have to fight I can't flee, I'm just going to have to fight. And he had to make the decision right there. And just about that time, right out beside him, came a six-foot-long monitor lizard. And he had a picture of it last. It looked like a dinosaur when he put it up there last week. It's a big old thing, and, he, and it just kept going on the other side of the path. Um, and he, Jay told this story to illustrate Paul's charge to Timothy and his decision whether to flee or to fight. Paul was warning Timothy about some dangers he and the church of Ephesus were facing. One of the dangers was the false teachers, which we talked about, and then the danger of the love of money. Right? Not, not money, but the love of money. Now, Paul had mentioned back in verse 5 that false teachers had been robbed or deprived of the truth, and he didn't want Timothy to walk in the same track that they, trap they had walked in and be deceived. He didn't want Timothy to let his guard down and have someone deceive him about the truth. So Paul gives Timothy some practical exhortations to keep him from being deceived by the false teachers who, who want to steal that truth from him and the church of Ephesus where Timothy was. Jay also pointed out in, in verse 11, the first thing to do when, with those who are deceiving others about the, the gospel, spreading a false gospel, is to flee. Flee from false teaching and the love of money. That was the first thing that Paul instructed Timothy to do. Yet in fleeing, he also was to pursue something else. 
namely to pursue the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God recommends, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, because the Spirit of God, if we know Christ, lives in us and changes, gives us a new heart and puts things in our heart and to follow what the Spirit of God is leading and recommending in our life. So we want to flee from trying to keep the law as a means to justification, meaning to be made right with God or to living right. We want to to flee that because remember, the law was not given to us to make us right with God. I hope you understand that. If you don't, maybe it's the first time. Keeping the law, there's 613. First of all, memorize all those. All right, but just the top 10, what we call the 10 commandments. Keeping the law was never meant for us to keep to make us right with God. In fact, we can't keep it. No one could ever keep it. It was given to us to show us our sin and need for a Savior, to see we can't keep it. God, would you help me? That's what it was meant to do. So to flee from trying to keep the law to make ourselves right with God or to live right, instead pursue and submit ourselves to the control of the Spirit who is in us. Flee the law as a means of righteousness and pursue and submit ourselves to the Spirit. And not only does he, does he tell Timothy to flee and pursue, but he also tells him to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life he already possesses. Remember, eternal life, most of the time we think of it as a, a quantity, and yet in John 17 we find out that it's a quality of life. John 17. Uh, so fighting for the truth, uh, so the quality of life we have here is like the quality of life we're going to have there. We're going to fight the good fight and take hold of what is already in us that God has made us into so we can live a life that honors God here just like it will one day in his eternal presence. We then saw in verses 12 and 13, Paul remind us, uh, that Paul remind Timothy that he made this good confession. He, he had made some kind of good f- confession and, and just like Jesus has done, had done before Pontius Pilate. So here comes Jay's story back into the mix about Pontius Pilate, and Jesus made this good confession. And Paul tells Timothy, just like you made your good confession, and Jesus made his good confession, fight the good fight. Well, how does that, that all go together? Well, the good confession that Jay reminded us is this. Jesus thought this. Timothy thought this. I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. I have, to, I have come to do the Father's will and finish his work, and no one's going to take that from me. That's the good confession. That's what Jesus basically did before Pilate. I have come to do the Father's will, and I'm going to finish his work, regardless of what anybody else says or whatever, regardless of what's going on. And, he, he, and at some point in Timothy's life, he had made that confession. I'm going to follow Jesus. And then Jesus came through the Spirit and lived in Timothy, and Timothy was enabled then to live that out. So in face of the dangers of false teachers and the love of money, we need to fight, flee, pursue, and know who we are in Christ, and by his grace, do the Father's will to the end. Well, that's last week. That's a review from last week. So if you would, please stand with me, as we always do, and we're going to read God's word together for this morning, taken from 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16. Here we go that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, 
To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. To you be honor and eternal dominion, Lord. And as we look at this passage this morning, that's what the end result we hope is, that you would be glorified. Lord, teach us by the Holy Spirit in us your word this morning so that we might honor you with our entire life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just, just on a, as a way of warning to you all this morning, that's always scary, right, when there's a warning coming. Here's a little way of warning. I'm fired up this morning. I am so full from studying this passage for weeks. And I, when I saw I had this passage, uh, Jay and I kind of work this out, and, and when we're going to be here, we kind of lay out who's got what, that kind of thing. Sometimes it gets thrown off if some, something happens, but I knew it was kind of, if I, even if I was dead sick, I was coming this morning. All right, I'm fired up about this passage. It just filled my heart, filled my soul, filled my life. So bear with me this morning if I'm a little extra excited about what's going on here this morning. But before we dive into this passage, I, I want us to consider my favorite part of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You ever read that book? It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. If you haven't read that book, shame on you. If you haven't read your kids that book, shame on you. All right, You can go get a version that's a little more modern English too, but the, the book is in this series called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. It's when, and, and if you haven't read it, or you might have seen the movie too, the book's better, but that's okay. Go see the movie if you can't read it. Um, but it, it's when the four children are, are one of the first discussions they have in the land of Narnia, and they're hearing a description of Aslan, from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now, Aslan is the Jesus figure, and you can't miss it. It's amazing in, in, in throughout this series, Aslan is. So they're having this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, all right? You just got to picture this. Here, here it goes. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about being a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about faith? safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Wow, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And as we study our passage this morning, we will be, we will be reminded that the king, our king, God, isn't safe, but he's good. And this is a good thing for us. So as we examine this passage this morning, uh, the Lord through Paul will present four truths concerning the king. And that, that will spur us on in the face of the difficulties, whether it be false teachers, trials, the potential love of money. It will spur us on in the face of difficulties we face as followers of Jesus. So here, here are the four truths. I know some of you are big note takers, so I do this for you. The king's commandment. The king has a plan. The king is, and the king's glory. The king's commandment, the king has a plan. The king is, and the king's glory. 
Well, let's begin again by looking at our passage in verse 14, that you keep the commandments without stain or reproach. All right, let's look at that, that, that phrase right there, that you keep the commandments without stain or reproach. And it's in these words we find our first truth, the king's commandment. This commandment in verse 14 is connected, not, no surprise, with what Paul said in verse 13. So let's drop back there. He said, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before, before Pontius Pilate to keep the commandment. See how it goes? I charge you in the presence of God and, 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 and of Jesus Christ to keep the commandment. All right? So in whose presence are we to keep this commandment, to keep this charge, this commandment? Well, God speaking to the Father and Jesus the Son. That's in whose presence we're to keep the commandment. That ought to bring just a, a good heaviness. You know what I mean? Just, just, just a he- whoa. In the presence of God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, look at that word there back in verse 14, commandment. So you've got to ask, what commandment? To what commandment is Paul referring? It doesn't really spe- specify. There's been all kinds of, what, which one is it? Well, it doesn't have to be one. Uh, the commandment, I, I believe you look at the context, it's just a general command encompassing all that Paul has taught in this letter to Timothy about preaching the gospel, setting the church in order, combating the false teachers, which is really summed up in verses 11 and 12, which we covered last week. To flee, to pursue, to fight by doing the Father's will and finishing his work. That's the commandment. It says, I charge you to keep that, to keep fighting, fleeing, pursue. Embrace who God has made you and what he's called you to do. And, and notice how are you to do it. Look at that, that, that phrase there without stain or reproach. Do it in such a way that it does not call into question the gospel or the transforming power of the gospel in your life. Without stain, without reproach. We saw this word earlier when we saw the, the, the uh, qualification for elders. It means this re- without reproach, it can't stick. They can throw accusations at you, but it's like Teflon, right? It just slides right off. Right? That's the way we do it so it won't bring a question about the gospel. So what is it that gives us hope and encouragement and strength and assurance to keep the commandment without stain or reproach? Well, look with me at verse 15 here. It says, and it says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. And in these words, we see the second truth concerning the king. The king has a plan. The king has a plan. We've been talking about having a plan around here, right, haven't we? A plan to make sure we're in, our word, in the word of God every day, in prayer every day, communing with God every day. But this is a little different kind of plan. The king has a plan. Notice that phrase there, there in verse um, uh, 15, he says, which he will bring about at the proper time. It's used two other times in the pastoral epistles. What's that? First, Second Timothy, and Titus. They're called the pastoral epistles, all right? It's used two other times. One earlier in, in First Timothy, Christ gave himself as a ransom at the proper time. And then in, in Titus 1.3, eternal life was manifested by God through his word at the proper time. You all, the king has a plan. You know, he, he has a plan. It's not willy-nilly and, oh, this happened, I think I'll change you. No, he has a plan. The king has a plan. The king has a plan. And we see this throughout God's word, not only here. Romans 5.6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The right time, the fullness of time. How about this one in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11? Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. The king has a plan. It's evident from his word that the king has a plan, and he's working it, and he will accomplish his plan. Isn't that good news? No matter what we do, he will accomplish his plan. We cannot, the, the, the old word thwart, we can't stop the great plan of redemption of God. And specifically, he's talking here in our passage about the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. We just talked about this in the Lord's Supper. Are we anticipating his return? He says, keep this until what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are expecting his return, then we need to do what Martin Luther said years and years ago. He said this, we really believe that Jesus is coming again and it's part of the plan and God will do it. He'll send his son again. Then we'll live every day for that day. We'll live every day for that day. The day of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look with me uh, at the remainder of verse 15 and 16, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed or blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. This is, it's in these words we see the third truth concerning the king. The king is... The king is. Who is this king? Better yet, who is the king who has a commandment and a plan? Who is the king? Here's where we'll spend most of our time, the rest of our time this morning, in, in this section right here. Paul is going to lay out some of the attributes of God or characteristics of God. He's going to describe to us who the king is. And this is so important. Here's where we'll discover that he isn't safe, but he's good. Before we begin to look at the specific attributes of the king that Paul presents here in our passage, let me help set up what's going to happen, getting ready to happen, all right? John and I, uh, my bride, on our 15th wedding anniversary, we decided to fly from Texas to t Tennessee to the Smoky Mountains, uh, and she really did this for me. She likes the beach. I like the mountains. She planned it, surprised me. We went to the mountains. I love the mountains. I love the Smoky Mountains. I, I like all the stuff in Colorado, but I like the trees. Or I like the oxygen. Maybe that's what I like about the mountains and, and be, better than the ones out in Colorado. But, so we decided one day when we're there, we're going to climb up Mount Leconte. Mount Leconte is the second highest peak in the, peak in the Smoky Mountain Range. Um, Klingon's Dome is the highest, but you can get there by car. You can't get by to the top of uh, Mount Lacan by any kind of motorized vehicle. In fact, they have a lodge up there, like a super rustic lodge uh, at, with outdoor toilets, all that kind of stuff up there. And the only way that they get the food up there is through pack mules, right? So you've got to walk it. There's no, ride, there's no free ride up the top of Mount Lacan. So we decided we're going to get up early. We're going to walk it up and back. Most people don't do that, but we 
felt a little younger back then, so we took off and we went up toward Mount Lacant. And on our way up Mount Lacant, um, as we hiked, there were places you could kind of get off the trail, and it wasn't like the, the, the trail that, that uh, um, Jay was on. These had big, huge trees, pine trees, fir trees, all these beautiful trees that if you've ever been to the Smoky Mountains. Um, and we're walking along a path, and you could you see a little opening over here, so you walk over here, and you look out and see, oh, my gosh. This is breathtaking. Look at that. Wow. It's almost as beautiful as you, sweetie. Did you get that, guys? All right. All right. So we keep walking. All right, and we walk, and we walk a little further, and some of them, you kind of go on a little cliffs like that, and it kind of steps up, and, and oh, there's another place to look out. Oh, that's amazing. That, that's a, even better than the last part. And we do this all the way up Mount Lacant, and we get up to Mount Lacant, and you hike along the ridge, and there's a lookout point you want to get to at Mount Lacant. And I knew because I had hiked this as a kid with my, with my uh, family a few times. So we get up there, and we get out there, and it's like, whoa. I can see everything we saw on every step of the way and every lookout we had seen already. But this is the best yet because I can see all that and I can see even more. It was amazing. It's beautiful. In some ways, indescribable. You couldn't even do enough words to describe what you saw up there on top of Mount Lacant. And see, we're going to take a journey here in these few verses this morning. And we're going to get a glimpse of the king along the way. And we're going to get to the mountaintop and we're going to see the king in his fullness. I hope you're excited to walk with me on this journey this morning. I'm, I'm pumped. I already told you I was excited. All right, here we go. All right, I, I want to say this. A.W. Tozier in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, has a quote that stuck with me for years when it comes to this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. Listen to that first part again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. I'm just telling you right now, the world as a whole, and I can definitely say this about the United States, and maybe even the church as a whole in the United States, has a low view of God. If I, I, didn't want to, I don't even want to follow that God. I want to follow this God. I want to follow the king. I want to have the right view of God because it changes everything. Look now at verse 15. And this first word, um, he who is the blessed or blessed, it means happy, content, fulfilled. God, the king, is perfectly happy, content, and fulfilled in himself. Let me say that. He's perfectly happy, content, fulfilled in himself. Think about that. He's the only being who can be that. He gives us contentment and fulfillment and happiness. He needs nothing or no one. Listen to this. He needs nothing or no one to be eternally in the state of fulfillment with a happy disposition. God doesn't need anyone else or anything else. He, he is that. Does that make sense? That's amazing, because think of if he was not content in the right kind of way. We're not being content with where things are. We're talking about content from, first, from Philippians 4, right? Happy and, 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 and fulfilled in himself. If he had to get something outside of himself, would he be God? No. Now, he does some amazing things, right? He chooses to do all these, like create the world, to provide salvation. But he doesn't need that to be fulfilled, he does that out of grace because if he needed to be fulfilled, it wouldn't be grace anymore. 
Somebody would be holding something over God's head and say, God, you got to do this. Not God. He's blessed. The king is blessed. Look now at the next word in verse 15. The only sovereign, your translation may say ruler, it means supreme ruler and the power to rule. He's on the throne. He, listen, he inherently possesses this power and right. It's not given to him. And he's the only one who inherently possesses sovereignty. We talk about a sovereign state. Someone's a ruler. They're, they're a sovereign of that area. It was given to them, not with God. He's inherently sovereign. The following passages of Scripture make this absolutely clear. Look at Psalm 93.1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the word is, world is firmly established. It will not be removed. Psalm 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Is there any doubt that the king is sovereign? He reigns and rules over all. Is there any doubt? Not from God's word. There might be doubt in our mind, but there's not from God's word who he presents himself to be. There's no doubt. And, and, and if he's not, we got a problem. That because that means maybe you and I are in charge. And I, can t- I don't know about you, but you don't want me in charge. Because if I'm ruling, I'm not safe. And I'm also not good. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this and why it makes such a difference. There's no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon the throne, for it is upon the throne, it is a God upon the throne in whom we trust. You can't claim Romans 8.28 if you don't believe God is sovereign, that God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You can't claim that if he's not sovereign because he can't work all things, can he, for our good if he's not sovereign. If he doesn't rule, think about that. That's how important this is. You all, the king, the king is sovereign. Now look at the next word in verse 15. King of kings, used of pagan emperors throughout the Old Testament, Babylon and Persia, the kings were called the king of kings. And also the pagan gods, and understand when Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, this is a polytheistic culture. They have lots of gods, small g gods, not real gods, false gods, but they, they, they would call them the, the king of kings. That would, even their gods would rule over the physical kings. All right? But see, God's not just a king. He's the king. And he's the king of kings. He's the king of kings. And then look what the next phrase is. Lord of lords. It's used to assert the Lord's absolute sovereignty over every ruler or nation. He's the Lord. Okay, we're not going to use keyword. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We, we see both of these used in reference to Jesus Two times in Revelation, look what it says in Revelation 19, 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes, this is speaking of Jesus. And our passage is specifically talking about God the Father. He's going to want, he's gonna, remember, he's going to send at the appointed time, the right time, the proper time, Jesus for the second coming. So he's talking about God the Father. But listen to this. All the attributes of God the Father are also true of God the Son and God the Spirit. 
because they're three in one, the Trinity. All right, one what, three who's, if, that, if, if the Trinity confuses. One what, God, three who's, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's all true of all of the Trinity. The king is the king of kings. The king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Hey, how's the journey going so far? How's the outlook going about who we're talking about? The king. Are you enjoying it? Aren't we thankful that's the king that we have? The king? Well, look at the next thing in verse 16. He, he who alone possesses immortality. He alone, listen, inherently possesses immortality. No one gives it to him. He has it. He gives it to others. Just like he gives blessedness to others, he gives uh, sovereignty in, in a sense to others. He, he gives immortality to others, but he possesses it. He has life in himself. In him, we talk about Jesus, in him was light, and the life was the light, the, his life was the light of men. He has life. He gives it to others. He will never die. The king is immortal. Now look at verse, verse 16 again, unapproachable light. It means transcendent majesty. We don't use these words, you mean. It just, it, it, it's unapproachable light. It's just, it's just so out there. And, and the, the picture here, I believe, when God manifests, is when, when God manifests himself, manifests himself to the nation of Israel. Look in uh, Exodus 24, 17. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. It was, it was, it was a consuming, it was so bright. It was unapproachable, right, unapproachable light. His glory was manifested so much, it was unapproachable for any human on their own merit to approach. Let me say that. On their own merit to approach. We're going to get to some good news here in a second, all right? That's not bad news. That's the fact who he is, all right? And it goes hand in hand with the next phrase in verse verse 16 of our passage. Um, Unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And I think he... At least this is one of many passages in the Old Testament that he could be referring to. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make, this is God, I will myself make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He couldn't couldn't see God in fullness of his glory. This is Moses who he gave the law to. When we say a holy man, he wouldn't, Moses couldn't stand in the fullness of his glory. He couldn't see him in his fullness. It had been too much for Noah. If you go, if you want to see too much, go say Isaiah 6, when um, God gives Isaiah this vision of himself, and, and it's so much that Isaiah falls down and says, woe is me, God, I am undone, or I am ruined, and, and actually it's the word, I am disintegrating to integrate means to bring together. I am falling apart in your presence, God. And that was a glimpse of God's glory with Isaiah. Well, in, in a physical sense, though, we, we can't see God in his fullness. Um, but we can see God through spiritual eyes. Jesus talked about seeing him in, in the Sermon on the Mount. They will see God. 
And, and we can taste and see in Psalm 34 that the Lord is good. So there's some sense in a spiritual way we can see God, but we can't see him in his fullness. I, I believe on the, uh, in eternity, we'll be discovering more and more about the fullness of the glory of God for all eternity. We'll never exhaust who God is. Isn't that good news? That's great news. That's who our God is. That's who the king is. And when we consolidate the, the, this, this, the, these phrases, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can ever see, we can say the king is holy. The king is holy. The word holy is what actually the angels cry out in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God, repeated three times for emphasis in all of Scripture, we also see it in Revelation, holy, holy, holy. It means to cut, to separate. It means other. God is, in a sense, a cut above. He's separate from us. He's different. I'm glad he's not just a good man, the best man we can think of, because it won't be good enough. He's God. He's holy. So how is the view from the top? How's the view from the top? It's pretty good. This is our God. Not some puny little God that we got on a leash telling him what to do. This is the God of the universes. And the more we discover, he's the God of that universe too. This is the God. This is the king that we worship. The songs we sang this morning were meant for us to look to the king. All right? that, that's, that's why we sang them. All right? Listen to this. He's indescribable. And in that way, he says, you are amazing, God. And then come thou almighty king, father all, all, all glorious, or all victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. And then behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. That's why we sing those songs, to lift our eyes, lift our gaze to the king, the God of heaven and earth. Wow, that's the king. The fact that the king has a plan is, and he's blessed, sovereign king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's holy is what enables us. Listen, here's what ties together. This is what enables us to keep the commandment without standard reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we know we got that kind of king, then we can do it, can't we? We can keep the charge and keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's our king. That's why we can do it. The fact that the king has a plan and is blessed and sovereign king of kings and lord of lords and holy will enable us to flee and pursue and to fight by doing the Father's will and finishing his work until he comes. This is our king. This is our God. Now look with me at the last phrase there in verse 16. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's in these words we see our fourth truth concerning the king, the king's glory, the king's glory. To him, honor and eternal dominion. All right, uh, amen. Listen, to him, the king, honor and eternal dominion. Not, not anyone else. Remember back in chapter one of, of, of 1 Timothy, if you, you were here, if not, I'm gonna remind us of this. And Paul was teaching about how Christ came in the world to save sinners. You all remember that? including himself. And he said, and I'm the worst. And, and he's so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God in saving him and sending Jesus for him, he can't help but exclaim, look what he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He just couldn't help himself. 
It was just too much to think about. Oh, my goodness, you did that for me? It's all about you, God. It's all about what you've done. And now he's so overwhelmed in our passage this morning with who the king is. He can't help but explain exclaim himself again. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He can't help it. You ever been there where you just can't, you can't help it? Sometimes we can help it and we say we can't. But this is one of the things we ho- I hope you can't help it. I hope you can't help but ex- express in maybe your words, but similar words to Paul, that to, 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 to the king, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And the king has reserved this kind of glory, giving him glory for himself and him alone. Look what it says in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Only God deserves this kind of glory. Only God deserves these kind of words directed toward him. That's the king. He deserves it. Well, how in the world can we respond to God's word this morning? Back this up. How can we respond? Let me make this statement. I've said it different ways before. Understanding the who leads to the do. Let me say it again. Understanding the who leads to the do. Understanding who God is and who we are in Christ leads to what we do, our actions. When we truly understand him in our right relationship with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, all right, understanding him and then who he's made us to be, that leads to what we do. If you begin with an erroneous view of who God is, it would adversely affect every aspect of your walk with him. Let me say that again. If you begin with an erroneous view of who God is, it will adversely affect every aspect of your walk with him. Remember, he, he isn't safe, but he's good. And those who have trusted in the gift of his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sin, know his goodness in an intimate way and can, abro- listen, can approach his throne of grace. Listen, because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of this king, the king. We can approach his throne of grace and find grace and mercy when we have need, which to me is every second of every day I have need. I need his mercy and grace every day. We can do that to the king. Well, getting ready to close here, just want want to share this with you. A couple springs ago, just a few months after we moved here to the lake, um, two, two, two years ago, my mom had open heart surgery. It was a surprise to us. My dad called me. I still remember I was at the pancake house with some of the guys at our church and having a Bible study one morning. And I got a call from my dad, and then he called back and he called back. And I knew it was serious, so I took this call. And my mom had been not feeling well, and they couldn't figure it out, so they did a cath and found out she needed a quadruple bypass surgery right now. Um, and the doctor was surprised that she was still moving. Um, and, and after the surgery, I got in the car, I came, went home, got my stuff, got in the car, and took off. And I got there. Lex, they live in Lexington, Kentucky. And after the surgery, they had a very difficult time getting her to come out under the anesthesia. Um, in, in fact, it was close to a week before she really understood where she was or what, what had happened. And in fact, it was a year before she really began to get some of her short-term memory back. It really affected her. Um, and... Uh, so we were obviously really concerned during that, those first few days, and thankfully the Lord brought her through this. She's doing great now, um, thankfully. Um, and, and, but during those first three d- few days uh, after her surgery, when she wasn't talking, she had very few moments, even when her eyes were open, f- for a week. Her, maybe once or twice a day her eyes would open. That was it. 
During those times, I decided to start singing old hymns to her. And to my, my dad and my surprise, she started singing with me. Eyes closed, you could hardly hear her, but she was singing. I sang every hymn I knew. And when I forgot some of the words and the verses, she kept going. I had to get my phone out and find more hymns because I was running out. And as I sang, and she started singing with me, I could hardly keep the tears back. In fact, I, I didn't keep them back. I just began to weep. First, just tears of joy that, that my mom was in there. But those tears of joy also turned turn to tears of thankfulness and pride. That my mom couldn't speak. She wasn't responding to anything. That the word of God through those old hymns was what was coming out. That's what came out. And I hope one day if I'm in that position, that's what's coming out of me. You see, my mom was just like Paul in this passage of Scripture. We've been studying this morning. She couldn't help herself. She couldn't help herself because that was what was in her. That's who she believed in. Was the king. Not some old king. The king king we've been talking about. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget. That's all that was coming out for a week. She couldn't respond but sing God's word through the hymns. She believed with Paul and hope all of us. And couldn't help but explain He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an approachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I, too, believe with all my heart these things, too. And I trust that's what you believe about the King. In fact, I can't help but want to sing. I just want to sing about the King. So, I want to ask you to, to, to join me in singing a couple verses of some old hymns that, that help us look to God. And the first one is holy, holy, holy. And, and listen, I, don't get concerned about how you sound. God doesn't care. He, doesn't, he, he just wants us to sing to him. And, and I can tell you right now, God made us. If you go to Ephesians 5 with J. taught through, the, the sign of a spiritual person is they sing. They may not sing to everybody, maybe in the shower or whatever, but it comes out of our house. We've all had a song we get in our heart, right? We want to sing. So I just ask you to sing this with me. This, this first verse of holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And the chorus of How Great Thou Art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. 
great thou art. Oh, people, he deserves our praise, doesn't he? He's the king. And I hope that's what comes out of us. So would you stand with me as we read our passage again for this morning in closing? 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Remember, this is our God. This is the King. This is the one who enables us to hold fast, to fight, to flee, to fulfill what he's called us to do, to keep the commandment of honoring him with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, my my heart is full. My prayer is that your people's hearts are full this morning too as we, we think about who you are. Lord, and that changes everything. Lord, thank you for being a God who didn't just stay up there, wherever up there is. Uh, But, Lord, you decided, because you loved us, to send your Son to die in our place, that we might be reconciled to you, made right with you, be forgiven, and know you, the King. Lord, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now remember, before we dismiss, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have some people on each side of the stage up here, down, down here. If you want to pray with somebody, you have questions, want to talk to somebody about something, they'll be there to do that with you. And this morning, our benediction, benediction is going to come from Jude 24 and 25. The benediction is just a blessing if that word throws you off. And let, me, let me read this over you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed.